0: This is Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas.
1: <laughs> my name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. John Rappaport, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Good to be here. How is the information war treating you?
0: Well, my whole strategy is to treat it before it gets me. So, I think what's happening, at least from my corner of it right now, is, you know, I've spent the last 40 years basically giving people information, which has involved lots of investigations into scandals, crimes of magnitude. I don't just mean little small, narrow things, but, you know, major things. And so after emerging from two years of writing about COVID almost every day, maybe 400 articles. I came out of that tunnel and looked around. And so now my target is basically the culture what people think, what they don't think, whether they think at all, the themes that are being promoted to destroy whatever is left of freedom and rationality, common sense, mainly coming from the left, but my definition of the left is the people who are extremely well-funded and promote themselves as victims in order to gain power. They don't want freedom. They don't want equality. They want power. But they have developed a kind of fake language to convince everybody that their perpetual and eternal victims who have to be accorded special treatment. And if they're not given special treatment, then it's time for them to go to war. So they're my targets these days.
1: I mean, in the independent media, your your name is quite prolific, but A lot of people are still finding their way through the fog of mainstream propaganda and are probably only just now discovering your work. What is your background, John?
0: Starting in 1982, I started writing freelance articles for LA Weekly, which was uh, an alternative weekly in Los Angeles. And then I began contacting various publications in the US and Europe, and I found it was very easy to get work and assignments. And I wrote on a variety of political issues, medical issues, until somewhere around 1987, when I wasn't very interested in what these publications wanted me to write about. I just wanted to branch out on my own. So I did. A small publisher contacted me and said he wanted a book about AIDS, which I knew nothing about. But I had a feeling that there was some enormous scandal at the bottom of it. And so I said, yes, we signed a contract. And I spent, I don't know, close to a year, I guess, writing and researching that book, which was really my uh, education on the spot in doing investigative research. Scientific, medical research, political research all rolled up in one giant ball. And I published the book in 1988, AIDS Inc. Scandal of the Century, which basically concluded that HIV was not the cause of AIDS, that there was no such thing as AIDS, that it was a variety of different health conditions around the world that had been welded together as one, uh, a major piece of fraud, and that the treatments were killing people. Uh, there was a lot more to it than that, the book, but that was the the basic thesis. So coming out of that, I worked for a publisher in uh, San Diego called The Truth Seeker. And eventually in the year 2000, I started my own website, nomorefakenews.com which I've had, and I've written for almost every day for the last 20 years, 22, whatever it is now. And then recently started a page on Substack. So I've written a couple of other books in in the interim, uh, The Secret Behind Secret Societies, Oklahoma City Bombing. And that's what I do. I write every day there weren't all that many people at the time who were interested, but more than, uh, you know, met the eye. And over the years, more people have understood what I and others at the time were driving at. But when COVID hit, for me, It was just like looking at a replay. Okay, it's the same story. Actually, the virus doesn't exist at all. HIV, SARS-CoV-2, that's a whole story in itself. The diagnostic test, the PCR, is completely useless, meaningless, irrelevant, and deceptive, and can be rigged to spit out results so that case numbers can be manufactured out of thin air. Yes, there are people who are dying and suffering, but they're dying and suffering for a variety of reasons. They're mostly old people at the time, at the beginning, who are suffering from a number of other health conditions. And the treatments are exceedingly toxic. Remdesivir for COVID and also the heinous use of breathing ventilators and sedation in hospitals, which uh, is a lethal treatment. The whole thing was planned. The real operation was to destroy economies Bankrupt huge numbers of people and lock down populations and obtain compliance and provide a gateway into what people call the new normal, the great reset, the new world order, what have you, global governance. Which is still going on. I mean, if anybody thinks we're out of the woods, they're crazy, but. I immediately saw the whole parallel to AIDS and HIV as soon as this whole COVID thing was announced. And so I just started writing about it. But if I hadn't done that research back in 1987-88, it would have taken me quite a while to sift through everything and figure out what was going on.
1: Do you see things a lot clearer now as a result of that original research
0: absolutely see it was a period I mean I had a background in logic philosophy that's what I'd studied in college and literature and writing and rebellion basically you know um So when I dove into writing this book about AIDS, I was living in a very small space studio apartment. I was pasting notes to the walls all over the place. There was no internet, there was no cell phone, there was no anything. If you wanted to find out something medical, you went to a medical library, which I did, UCLA Biomed Library, down in the stacks, looking at old studies in medical journals. And so I was staggering in 17 different directions at the time, feeling my way along, talking to people who had all kinds of alternative views of what AIDS actually was. And I started writing a few articles here and there as I was doing the book. But finally, Charles Ortleb, who was the editor of a paper in New York City called A New York Native, told me that I needed to read Peter Duesberg's paper in cancer research in the spring of 1987. He said, this will get you straight. Because, like I said, I was going in a whole number of different directions, all based on the assumption that there was this thing called HIV and it was causing this thing called AIDS. So what Duesberg was arguing a famous world famous molecular biologist at University of California, was that HIV was a very bad candidate for a cause of something like the immune system collapse called AIDS, and he spelled out why. And I could understand enough of what he was saying in the paper to suddenly say, wait a minute, let me back away from all, everything I've been doing here and look at it through that lens. And suddenly, everything came clear. Because what I had been doing was, I took the five risk groups that the CDC had listed and said, these people are at high risk for AIDS. Africans in certain parts of Africa, Haitians, blood transfusion recipients, hemophiliacs, and gay men. And I had been tracking down what was causing the immune systems of these groups to collapse. And what I was discovering was there were factors right out in the open that had nothing to do with HIV, which, you know, drove me to distraction because I still have this idea over here that HIV was, at bottom, the cause of the whole thing. Now, though, when I saw, okay, there is no reason to assume that HIV is the cause of anything. In fact, the further I looked into this, there was no evidence for that at all. Now, what I saw was, okay, you can create the appearance and the illusion of an epidemic by taking these various groups who have health problems for different reasons and you can weld them all together and say they're all suffering from the same thing, a virus. Wow. That's like an intelligence agency operation. Mm -hmm. That's like high-level shit to be saying that and to try to foist that off on the public. That was a revelation to me. Now I felt on firm ground. Okay, this is political. That's what's going on here. This is high level political stuff that's going on here. And so I got on the phone with a molecular biologist named Harvey Bialy, who passed away a year or two ago. He was the editor of, uh, biotechnology, which was a medical journal. And he was already an HIV dissident. He was saying that HIV was not the cause of AIDS. And he had lived in Africa for some time. I didn't know him from the man, the moon. And we started talking and right away I felt, okay, this is a guy I can talk to. We were both from New York. We both spoke the same language. I said, look, this is the way it looks to me. You've got these African countries. They've been bombarded for a long time. Corporations taking over the best land and building giant agricultural farms and shipping the food out of the country. Corrupt local dictators making deals with these corporations. You've got industrial corporations sucking up land and polluting Polluting the land and the water like crazy and making people sick. You've got people hungry, starving, uh, dying of malnutrition and uh, dehydration, contaminated water supplies that the local dictators refuse to clean up because they want to keep the people weak and disabled and all of that, and more. But, you know, let's take those basics. So I said to Harvey, I said, Seems to me they need a cover story for all of this, just like the CIA would. They got to explain why all these people are sick and dying in these African countries. So what do they do? They say, huh, we just discovered the virus. It's the virus. New York Times, Washington Post, all the networks, BBC, everybody and his brother is now pushing that narrative. And I said, the virus has to be the greatest cover story ever invented. And there was silence on the other end of the phone. And then he said, that's the way it seems to me too. And that inspired me to keep on looking further in that direction. And the further I looked, the more uh, you know evidence I found. And I was convinced, okay. This is an operation. This whole so-called epidemic is an operation. You don't mount an operation like that that involves medical people, scientific people, pharmaceutical people, heads of governments, public health departments, World Health Organization, CDC. You don't just off the shelf say, let's do this. This is planned stuff here. This is big time shit. So coming out of my book in 1988, I was ready for something like COVID. I was ready for a lot of things after that. I said in the book in 1988, the medical cartel long term is the most dangerous cartel in the world because they fly under a politically neutral banner. They claim they're completely nonpartisan, we're here to help and heal and that's it, blah, 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 blah. Who would doubt them? This is the greatest cover operation anyone could conceive of. Using medical science, the medical system with its toxic drugs and toxic vaccines to destroy whole populations from within and occasionally come out with some kind of massive epidemic program to further suppress and destroy populations. That's COVID, that's AIDS. And you had little little ones in between, swine flu 2009, SARS 2003, West Nile 1999, Zika 2015, et cetera, et cetera.
1: But they all weren't real.
0: I think that in a sense they were, they were also, we can't get this one off the ground far enough, that kind of thing. Okay. You know, this is not really going to fly. We don't have the structure in place for one thing, meaning we don't have wall to wall messaging that we can impose on the population to such a degree that we can drown out any other voices dissident voices we don't have enough public health department cooperation all over the world we don't have enough of a formation of political groups on the left who are just going to bow down and worship whatever Anthony Fauci for example has to say and call it science a lot of things were not ready But by 2020, they were. And that's what we got. And they're still ready.
1: Mm. John, in your research, have you found evidence for viruses?
0: No. I mean... You know, it's like if some scientist suddenly says, there's a pink man wearing a green robe walking around on the planet Jupiter. This is causing a lot of problems. Prove me wrong. What the hell are you going to do? That's how I look at virology except it's dressed up a lot more than a pink guy in a, per, in a green robe. They got the labs, they got the equipment, they got the lingo, they got the medical journals, they've got the dense technical description of how they isolated a virus and discovered it. They've got the entire media industrial intelligence complex behind them. But they're still talking about a pink or a purple guy in a green robe Walking around on the Jupiter, prove us wrong. Well, I think we have. <laughs> you know, insofar as we can say, we know what you're doing in the lab. And we know that it's false science. We know that you're claiming to be isolating these viruses from all surrounding material, but you're not. You never have. You just say you're doing that. Mm. So you can't certainly cook, I mean, you can't discover the genetic sequence of something you don't have. You can't characterize it, you can't describe it. You can only claim to be doing these things. Now, somebody could say, well, you never proved that there isn't this guy walking around on Jupiter. Yeah, because by the very nature of logic, you can't. But the burden of proof is not on me. It's not on Andy Kaufman. It's not on Tom Cowan. It's not on the Baileys. It's on the people who are claiming to be discovering these little items called viruses. And we've seen through enough of their science to know that the lab procedures that they're using are not doing what they say they're doing. So what are we to conclude? And when you think about the fact, which I was just explaining, What a fantastic cover story viruses are for very high level operations for me that adds even further credence you know the cdc has this unit it's had it for decades called the epidemic intelligence service eis they are the medical cia they train medical personnel they give them security clearances and these are the virus hunters. On a moment's notice, when you're a graduate of the Epidemic Intelligence Service, you can get a call in the middle of the night from the CDC. Okay, you've got to go down and fly down to La Gloria, Mexico tomorrow, because we seem to have an outbreak down there. The rest of the team will meet you there. We want you to take a look and see what's going on and report back. This is 2009, just to give you an illustration. These are the virus hunters. So they go down there. What are they looking at? The giant, giant Smithfield industry pig farm. I don't know, what, 900,000 pigs? It's a lot of pigs. The feces and the urine of these pigs comes out of the facilities and forms what are called, not my term, feces lagoons. And they're so big you can see them from space. So they spray chemical foam on these to hopefully decontaminate them. But at the time workers were getting sick and a few of them were dying and then they brought in new workers to spray more chemicals presumably more toxic chemicals on the feces lagoons and now more people got sick and some died and then the virus hunters from the eis arrived and of course what they do is they look around and they say yeah uh uh-huh and any sane person would say It's the shit lagoons and the chemicals, right? (laughs) Look at that. And they say, yeah, well, of course. Yeah, I mean, that's standard for, you know, pig farms. So we don't have to think about that. We need to take blood samples and tissue samples from the sick people and see if we can find a virus, right? So they do. And they do. They say, well, we use a PCR test. We found a fragment of the thing and we've never seen it before. And we call it H1N1. And it is why these people are dying. And now here come the papers being written and the confirmation and the World Health Organization declares a worldwide epidemic. And You know, it's just one layer after another. <laughs> I mean, And that's just the beginning of the swine flu story, because in 2009, the CDC in America was saying there were thousands of cases of H1N1 swine flu in America, and at the same time, the CDC had stopped counting cases. That's their job. That's why they exist as a public health agency, to report weekly on what's called morbidity and mortality. People sick, people dead from disease. And they had stopped counting while they were saying there are thousands and thousands of cases of swine flu in the US. So Cheryl Atkinson, investigative reporter for CBS in New York, decided to look into this and she discovered why the CDC stopped counting. Because overwhelmingly, the the number of, Samples being taken from these supposed swine flu patients that are routinely sent out to labs for testing were coming back with no sign of H1N1 or any other virus, any other flu virus. That's why the CD stopped counting. And she wrote a piece about this that was published in the, I would say, early fall of 2009 on the CBS News website. I interviewed Cheryl about this and she said my editor was very happy, said it was was the most unique story about swine flu that anybody had written, and it was all set to go on national television news, which is a much bigger deal than the CBS website. Boom. It was spiked. Boom. It was canceled. Boom. They stopped covering the story. Boom. It was never a story again on anybody. Boom, it was gone like it never happened. But, which I discovered three weeks after Atkinson published that story on the CBS website, WebMD came out with a story saying the CDC is saying that at the height of swine flu in America, get this, they estimate there were 22 million cases of swine flu in america you know i mean come on right it's the biggest pile of bullshit you could ever see
1: and also and they s- couldn't they couldn't define ca- a, a, a case
0: yeah that's the other thing what's the case what's mm. the case of swine flu what's the case of covid because you you look at the symptoms of covid it's the symptoms of the flu Muscle fatigue, you know, uh, muscle fever, chills, cough, congestion, uh, weakness, fever, tiredness. You know, a big deal. So people say, well, but but there's people dying. Yeah, it's severe. why Why are they dying? Well, here's one reason out of many. A study that was done of the biggest chain of hospitals in New York State discovered. That in people diagnosed with COVID over the age of 65, if they were treated with the standard protocol of breathing ventilators and sedation, which is necessary to do that, that treatment, 97.2% of those people die in the hospital, 97.2% die, and they keep doing the treatment. That's just one thing that explains why people are dying. People are dying for all kinds of reasons. At the beginning and the middle, before the vaccine was introduced, the overwhelming bulk of people who were supposedly dying from COVID were old people. In nursing homes, in hospitals, at home, in Canada, in the U.S., in Europe, wherever you looked. These were people that were already sick for years and years and years, had been treated with toxic drugs, poisoning their system. Now, you terrify them with a diagnosis of pandemic disease, you've got it, and you isolate them from friends and family, no visitors permitted, and you, you know, put the stigma of the thing on them, they fold up and die. They're already over the edge and are hanging on the cliff. By the time you even get to them with the diagnosis from all these other conditions. Plus, some of them you treat with the ventilators and with the sedation. There was a giant scandal in in the uh, UK about, I think the pronunciation is, medozolam, which is the sedative drug used with uh, the ventilator treatment. In the US, it's called Versed. If you use enough of that, you put a person out, <clears throat> their breathing fades away, fades away, you keep them under sedation long enough, they die. So this is just one explanation of why the other explanation is people generally coming to hospitals all over the world with respiratory conditions, which, you know, I mean, there's like, what, a billion cases of those every year in the world, something like that. You can call it whatever you want, flu, flu-like disease, pneumonia, this, that. They got a got hundred names for that, lung problems, lung infection, right? Now you have incentives at all of these hospitals to write COVID on the patient's file because hospitals are getting paid. Federal monies, certain other perks and so on to be reporting these patients as COVID and to write COVID on their death certificates. Well, that's a rich target population. If somebody said to me, look, we wanna fake a pandemic, so tell me something you would suggest. I'd say, well, your market really, your market is anybody who's sick enough to wanna go to the hospital, anywhere. Uh Uh-huh, yeah, I see. Okay, so now your only trick is labeling them with the pandemic disease label that you've cooked up. Let's call it X-47. How are you gonna do that? Because you see a certain percentage of these sick people that go to the hospital are gonna die for various reasons, including mistreatment in the hospital. So all you need to do is figure out a way to label these patients X 47 whatever cases and X 47 whatever deaths, and you've got your reports and your case numbers and all of that. That's a very rich target population for you to promote case number. Oh, yeah, I see that. Uh huh. So, how could we do this trick you're talking about? Well, get the government to pay the hospitals extra money for making that diagnosis. Schmuck, don't you see how this works? Money changes hands. That's how it works. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. So, there's that and I could go on and on, there's other factors as well. For example, in the north of Italy, there were vaccine campaigns going on before these people started getting sick that were called new COVID patients. Has anybody really looked into what was in those vaccines? I mean, that's to me an area that you should be looking at right away. Nothing to do with a virus or COVID or anything. So. There's multiple, multiple reasons why people get sick and die.
1: Why, then, is Steve Kirsch's campaign uh, disingenuous?
0: Well, you know, I have my fun with him. Poke needles at him. Um, You know, the guy's doing very good work on, on the COVID vaccines. Start off by saying that. So I don't really care about Steve. But... Somebody who was arguing that the virus doesn't exist, SARS-CoV-2, got under his skin. You know, that's, that's how it happened. And so he responded. And they got back to him and said, basically, Steve, you know, I'm not a rube. I'm not a yokel. I'm not an idiot. What you're saying is totally wrong because bah, 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 the virus doesn't exist. That got under his skin again. So one thing led to another, and because he likes to throw around the idea that he has money, he said, let's have a debate, and like a million dollars or whatever, and get your lawyers to contact my lawyers. We'll draw up a contract, and we'll put it on video. So I wrote a few articles about that, and I said only an idiot would want to decide a very serious con- uh, scientific question on video. What is this, like a beauty pageant? You know, and he wanted, at first he wanted, uh, I think it was, um, you know, readers to vote (laughs) on who won the debate. And then he said, we'll have a panel of independent experts decide. Where is that coming from? You know, that's not science. Video is good for what we're doing. But if you want to get down to the devil in the details on a very, very serious question, does the virus exist or doesn't it? There's a reason that journals publish words on the page instead of having the authors dress up and show up on video to say, in our recent cancer study, this is, let me, uh, in fact, as the author, I'd rather step aside and have one of the BBC anchors speak for me because he's much more convincing on camera, you know. And he's got better makeup people. And uh, so uh, just a moment, we'll put Carl on. Hello, everybody. This is Carl. So, brilliant work on cancer proves that, uh, you know, if you put your finger in your left ear, uh, you could be cured. You know, it's just ridiculous. (laughs) Fucking video. Are you kidding me? You know, for us to settle a really scientific question.
1: It's like a game show.
0: Yeah, it's a game show. I'll have what's behind
1: door number one. (laughs) Right.
0: The virus, is it behind door number one or door number two or neither door? Okay, get your buzzers ready, people. You know, we're going to decide the question now. And and the worst part of it, it maybe was that some people actually think that's the way to go. Video. You know, because they say, well, we like video. We like seeing people on video. So that's what we want. Because and then they say, because if we look at the way they talk, if we look at their faces and their eyes and their mannerisms and their body language, we can decide who's telling the truth. So it isn't just Kersh it's people who have been totally brainwashed into believing that looking at video is some kind of, you know, major answer to everything. It's preposterous and it shows the level of illiteracy in the culture is disintegrating rapidly because people just don't want to
1: read. What does it say though about science in general?
0: that we should be doing this on video? (laughs) You mean?
1: No, I mean, is science in the toilet?
0: Oh, science in the toilet, yeah. Well, what it says is, until people are willing to engage in an actual debate in writing, a serious thing, There is no debate. There will be no debate. For example, um, let's say someone, you know, who's smart, very, very smart, writes 150 pages purporting to prove that SARS-CoV-2 doesn't exist and publishes that. 150 pages is serious stuff. Now, is anybody gonna reply to that? Now, that's where the rubber meets the road. Because in order to reply to that, you can't say, well, he doesn't have a degree in virology, so forget it. Or, well, uh, I come from MIT or, you know, whatever, and he doesn't, so forget. Or, uh, you know, he's only one person and the consensus, of thousands of scientists is, so he's wrong. You can't do that. If you want to reply to 150 pages, you're going to have to do some serious work. Well, I don't see it that happening. I see it happening from uh, my side and our side. I don't see it happening from the other side. They're not willing to engage on that level of specificity we're not the people who are lacking in specificity who are throwing wild generalities around they are the people who claim wow we proved the virus existed long ago i mean
1: (laughs) john does it annoy you or is it a fair response when when someone says oh okay but if sars doesn't exist then what is causing x y and z and and why can't you give me the answer
0: Yeah, it annoys me, but I I suppress it because I've answered that question maybe 20,000 times since AIDS. Here's the deal. Once you take the virus out of the equation, there is no it. The it is COVID. COVID. It's a, it's a name, it's a label, it's, it's a word, that's all. Put that aside. Take the virus out of the equation, and what do you have? You have people getting sick and people dying. Why? Somebody says, well, if it isn't a virus, then what is it that's causing it? And I say, for the thousandth time, there is no it, so there is no it cause of it, there are multiple causes of people getting sick and dying. If you don't realize that, you're completely out to lunch. You have no possible way of seeing what's going on because you are, as it were, under the spell of the it. to believe there is an it with a single cause that's responsible for all these people getting sick and dying and you want me to tell you what it is and you're not even hearing really what i'm saying when i tell you there is no it there are people getting sick and dying for multiple reasons and those multiple reasons have been shoved to the side and suppressed in order to create a false narrative of a single it caused by a single it. That's the fake narrative, that's the bullshit. That's the intelligence agency type operation that's very successful because people have a predisposition psychologically to look for the one, the one thing. Give me the one, I want the one, whatever the one is. The one cause, the one reason, the one piece of evidence, the one smoking gun, the one
1: uh-uh-uh-uh-uh-uh,
0: right? In most cases, or in many cases, that doesn't fly at all. And this happens to be a case of, of that kind, COVID.
1: This a very poetic segue happening in your response there because it alludes to a decentralized type of a set of causes.
0: Voila, baby, voila, decentralization of disease. If I'm sick, and I wanted to see a practitioner, the best I could find, I would want somebody who is not just going to run a few tests but he's going to engage with me to try to find out why I'm sick me now here wherever i am and that conversation and that investigation and that exploration is not something that happens like you know like that that's decentralized medicine You can't do that in an assembly line geared to make money. Well, nurse, tell my patients uh, to wait for another four hours because this guy here, I got to really talk to him because he's got all kinds of things going on. And I want to tease it all out of him and flesh it out and see something toxic. I don't know. A bunch of things. Can't do that. Patients are lined up. They're ready to go. Okay, we ran the test. The kidney, but um, but if up, but boop. Here it is. Okay, take this drug. I'm gonna make an appointment with you with a specialist, kidney guy, 50 miles away. You're gonna go see him next week, and he's gonna do more tests. You know, <clears throat> decentralization ultimately comes down to the individual. Yes, there are commonalities among people who get sick, and certain tests can be useful. But there is this whole other area that I've just described that is not being done with doctors. So yes, what you pointed out is exactly right. You decentralize the idea of a pandemic. You destroy the it caused by an it. You know, you go, Bleh! gone. Okay, now let's look at things a fresh and new. We're not all being funneled into the same tube Mm. anymore.
1: But the term decentralization seems to be the catch-all for a lot of solutions. And I know you've written on that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. You know, different countries have different political setups. So, I tend to talk about America because that's what I'm familiar with. But that old statement, "Drain the swamp," which was used during the Trump years, you know, he's going to come in and drain the swamp. Yeah. Well. Starving, starving the swamp. Yeah. Yeah. Look, look at how many people work for the federal government. How much power has accumulated at the top? That's entirely unconstitutional. Goes against completely the idea of severely limited hamstrung government, which was the whole point of the Constitution. And these people, by and large, work year after year as bureaucrats. They never leave. Doesn't matter who's in the White House or who's in the Congress. You're going to drain that? So I wrote, no, starve the swamp. That's what you have to do. How do you starve the swamp? The powers that have been stolen from the people by the top heavy central government, you begin placing in smaller units, smaller places around the country, such as state governments, because the states in the Constitution were guaranteed all powers not enumerated to the federal government. And the state governments are way too big, so you have to decentralize that by taking their powers and putting them. Well, you don't take them, but you put those powers in cities, towns, villages, counties. You know, and eventually, people have contact with their their government because they know those people. Oh yeah, Bruno. He's my councilman. I'm going to talk to him because I see what they're doing with the money they're going to spend on. You know, this this is a scam. Everybody knows it. Let's go to the next council meeting and just blow them out of the water. We're fed up with this crap. You know, you can't do that with, you know, the Senate and the Congress and so on. All manner of things need to be decentralized. Education. And you need homeschooling. You don't want kids going to these crazy public schools and not learning to read or write, getting passed through grades, even if they're incompetent, being taught social values and moral values and sexual values. I mean, it's insane. Get them out of it, you know, decentralized on so many levels. <clears throat> and we need people with who are talking to their huge audiences all the time about this sort of thing. Uh, Influencers who are fed up with the system, you know? I give various examples. Get some famous race car driver who retired. He's got like three million fans. They love him to death. So he just gets a live stream and he talks to his fans every day for an hour. And he says, I remember back in Daytona when I crashed against the wall and almost died and the fire was everywhere. Let me tell you what was happening. And Everybody's like, whoa, you know. And then he says, you know, after all of that, he says, by the way, I wouldn't get that vaccine if you fucking stood me up against the wall and tried to shoot me. Wow, two, three million people are listening to that. And those two, three million people happen to be sort of... Predisposed in the direction of being rebels and rebellious uh, and not listening to everything that the media and the government tell. And he says, Yeah, look, you know, I'm not just spouting crap. The evidence is clear here. And he starts talking about that for 10 or 15 minutes in no uncertain terms, not like little mincing steps and maybe and a thing and I'm not sure. No, boom. You know, and then he finishes and he says, I'll be back tomorrow. Same time. I got a lot of things to talk to you about. Retired athletes, retired actors, retired race car drivers, retired. Whatever. Journalists that used to be famous and can't stand mainstream journalism anymore. If they all suddenly had live streams talking to their huge audiences every day with no filter, No bullshit, straight from the shoulder about what's happening in the culture, the insane things we're supposed to believe, you know. We can turn the culture around.
1: So that would be starving the swamp. Were you you creating decentralized authorities?
0: Yeah. Yeah. All over the place, in every way possible, all at the same time. You know, and different countries would have to do it structurally in different ways, but... It's the same idea, basically. Mm. This is the way I see it. This is this is the way it has to be. Because yes, I mean, it's not like you can never win in court, or you can never get a judge to say that they should never have censored me and I'm now gonna get some money or whatever. Sure, all these things are possible and I would never say that all political candidates are equally bad and and it doesn't matter who you vote for. Not saying that. But what I'm saying is, overall, you're not going to drain the swamp. But you can starve it out by if there's enough decentralization, then you've got this massive bureaucracy of people who just don't know what to do because the only solution left for them is a land war against the people you know what i'm saying president said today okay we're losing so badly that the only thing i can think of doing now is to invade the entire country with soldiers guns and you know they're really going to do that not in a, not in a million years that's the end game. They don't have anything left. Whatever they say, whatever they order, command, is already being commanded and ordered in a different way and, and, and rejected or accepted at different local levels. They have, you know, nothing left. That's the ideal. It's a shell. Washington DC or the capital of any nation is a shell. That would be the ideal at the end at the end game. They're still there. They're still collecting paychecks, but they've got nothing.
1: John, do you think um, accepting little wins is still generally a good thing? Let's say, for example, Elon Musk, who has a huge amount of criticism, and I have no idea how to read him. I I don't know. I don't know where he stands on anything. I don't know if he's if he's a, a prank <laughs> if he's a prankster, a troll. I don't know. But he says things. That resonate.
0: Sure, uh, you know, for what, it, and I think some of those things are good. So take the good and forget the rest. I don't know how to read them either. I mean, I don't know the guy. But that—that's sort of a half-hearted example of a kind of a bully pulpit, as they, you know, presidents used to call it, uh, between him and his vast audience of fans. When he says these things, that's what I've noticed during the COVID years. You've had all kinds of people plugging in to the rebellion against the official narrative. And, you know, they plug in here, they plug in there. They say, oh, look what I found out. This is all crazy. And okay, that's decentralizing to a degree. Sure. Uh, But. I'm aiming well, I'm aiming at a lot of things, but one of them again is the culture.
1: Because sorry, we've you, got sorry, John, when you say the culture, what what is it that you mean?
0: I mean, for example, in America, the official word is now that we are all supposed to believe that the trans- transgenderism movement is a massive political breakthrough into a new era of psychological progress. That there is something called gender dysphoria that even babies know about somehow, and kids know about, and. And that in the new society, boys wanting to be girls and girls wanting to be boys has to be supported, tremendously supported by government, by medical establishment, by scientific studies, by activist groups, by blah, 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 and celebrated to the hilt. Not just recognized or something, you know. Uh, And all of this, many, many busy bees are trying to weave it into the culture and embed it there as a new reality that has now taken hold and will be permanent. Now, I've launched all kinds of attacks against this I don't need to go into the specifics here, but that's an illustration of a giant cultural trend, okay? Now, it so happens that in America, there are gigantic numbers of people who oppose that trend. They are not having mainstream media voices, but, five gigantic influencers with live stream talking to their audiences every day would have an enormous impact on that issue.
1: Like Joe Rogan.
0: For example, sure. But other people who've never picked up a microphone before, you know, Mm. some famous lawyer that everybody admires or whatever, just says, you know, I'm fed up. I've reached the end of my rope. I'm coming out of retirement here. I'm on live stream. You all know me, blah, 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 blah. I'm going to talk to you because there's some really crazy stuff going on out there and we have to deal with it. We have to recognize it and, and not surrender to it. Boom. And he's off and running. And then a CEO of some, company wakes up one day, and he, he does it too, and he says, you know, I've been under house arrest, essentially, for the last six years, because my company is now compelled to hire people on the basis of race and uh, ethnicity and gender, regardless of whether they can do the job or not, regardless of whether they're competent. When my position has always been, I'll hire anybody. I don't care who they are. If they can do the job, if they're competent, I want them to work for me. That's all I care about. But now I've got all this bullshit that's descended on me from the government, from influencing social activist groups, from inside my company, from this, that, and the other thing, saying I can't do that anymore. I'm not free to do that. In a free country, I'm not allowed to do that. I have to have quotas. And percentages of people that I hire who may or may not be competent at all. And you know what? As of right now, that shit is over. They can try to do to me whatever they want. I've got lawyers from here to the moon. And if they want to get me into court on this issue, we're going all the way. Because I'm sick of this. And the guy's talking to 400,000 people the first day on live stream. And what do you think he's talking to the next day? 700,000. Because all of a sudden, that's resonating with people who, who know it to be so, who believe it, who want to get rid of that thing in the culture that they see as a massive obstruction that is destroying the country.
1: Yeah. And they can't be canceled because, as you pointed out, they have reached that kind of precipice.
0: Yeah. if, if The more of them that, that exist, the less likely they can be canceled. Mm. And they don't care about being canceled. That's the other thing. Oh, supposedly 100,000 people started screaming at me and said I should be shot at dawn in a field and dismembered because of what I said on live stream yesterday. I wonder how many of those people were really bots, robot accounts on Twitter to begin with. And as far as the actual humans, take your best shot. Because I'm not just going to sit here and surrender. You know, I mean, if you had a 100 people with big audiences doing that kind of thing as influencers, the cancel culture would be over. It would be dead. It only has power because people are afraid of it. Oh, what will happen to me and my presence on social media if other people on social media say that I'm a racist and a misogynist and this and that? and that the beep and they make up stories about me. Oh my god, I better shut up and grovel and apologize and whatever and whatever. If if that suddenly goes away. What do they have? They've have got nothing. They've got nothing at all. Let them scream. Who cares?
1: That's how you starve the swamp.
0: That's how you starve the swamp. Exactly. Because I love that.
1: I love that. I think that is so profound.
0: It, it's, sort of, it's a very simple thing to me. It took me a long time, I would say, to crystallize it in my mind. I had pieces of that. I was talking about decentralization back when I was writing A. Inc. But, you know... Recently, it kind of crystallized and other people might say, well, you know, I believe that too. Sure. Great. This is not exclusive property here. Uh, But yeah, to me, that's how you turn the oil tanker of the culture around. It's big. It's crazy. It's slowly moving. In a certain pre-planned direction, it's going to take a lot to turn it around, but it can be done in just the ways that I've been describing.
1: What are your views, John, on ultra cynicism?
0: I just ignore it now. I mean, I occasionally lash out at it because... I just think it's kind of a no-risk position. Ah, oh, the whole world is screwed. It's going to hell in a the handbasket. There's nothing. Just look around and and see this, see that, see this, that. And you really think that we're going to make a better world now? Nah, no chance. It's all over. That's the easy way. That's the chicken-hearted way. That's the cowards out. You know. Because no, you know, it's easy to say. It doesn't require any energy, any effort, any pushback against anything. You know?
1: And just... every Yeah, and, and everybody is controlled opposition.
0: Yeah, and everybody's controlled opposition, right. Sure. That's the other thing. As soon as these Doomers, as I might call them, who say, you know, the whole world is, is, you know, doomed, whatever. As soon as they see somebody who's starting to make sense in an opposite direction, rise to, let's say, a certain level, then they say, well, he's just controlled opposition. He was put there by the elites who are manipulating him to give us the illusion that there's a chance, but once you begin to see what he's really doing, he's just leading us down yet another blind alley and blah, 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 blah right? I've been hearing that shit for, you know, 40 years. And every time I see it, it's kind of like, uh, yeah, uh-huh, that's all you got? That's That's your whole story, you know? It's so easy to say that, see? It's like there's a guy, green guy, a purple robe on Jupiter. How are you going to disprove that? Well, it's not my my job. If somebody's going to tell me, look, I happen to know that John Q. Smith is controlled opposition. Great. Let's see the evidence. And don't give me any circumstantial hokum, pokum, you know like his 15th cousin by his third brother-in-law used to work for the National (laughs) Security Agency and, you know, happened to know Putin's 15th nephew on the mother's side (laughs) and bullshit, you know. and You know, lay it out there. Make the case. I've seen people try to make cases against people that I... I know or are not controlled opposition and they make weak cases, you know, they don't want to make cases because that's putting it out there in the same way that virologists don't want to have a debate in writing a real debate about the existence of SARS-CoV-2. They don't want to do that because mm. it exposes them completely. Now they have to really lay it all out in the same way the controlled opposition people, They don't want to really have to make the case.
1: Oh, but John, I have a photo from 12 years ago.
0: (laughs) Yeah, when he shook hands with uh, whatever, you know. And he's
1: he's on the World Economic Forum's website.
0: (laughs) Right. So there it is. Yeah, he's on the World Economic Forum's website. Well, maybe he's working for the World Economic Forum. So what is the guy, what is he, whoever, who's on that website, what is he saying? I don't know. Let's hear it. You know, here's the other thing. The controlled opposition people who are always making that claim, they don't want to actually look at what the person they're accusing of being controlled opposition is saying. They don't want to look at that head on. They don't want to assess the evidence that's being presented by that person or what that person is saying, that's the last thing they want to take it at face value. You know? So that's how they get around that. They say, well, you just controlled opposition. I don't have to listen to anything he says and blah, blah, beep, 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 beep. You know? It's, it's just a bunch of cranks.
1: Question, I suppose, or theme for you um is this idea of mass formation you've written about it
0: there are people who do very bad things to other people they're criminals now to say that those bad people might be doing the bad things because they're under the influence of something they've somehow become themselves hypnotized in some sense by ideas or lies or God knows what, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's like saying the predator who is destroying people's lives is really in some sense, the victim or a victim. I don't buy that. I never have. My work as a reporter, straight ahead reporter, has been mainly, not mainly, but, you know, it gets into people's names and who they are and what they're doing. And I believe that people are held responsible for what they do, especially when they're committing major crimes that are targeting large numbers of people. And then the other side of mass formation is somehow saying that the people who are being targeted, let's say, by COVID restrictions, you've got to distance, you've got to wear masks, you got to lock down, you got to get the vaccine, you got, got to be afraid, you know, that that phenomenon uh, is somehow like a cloud that descends over the the population or emerges from the earth or subconsciously in, as as if it's some sort of I don't know mass formation you know like a cloud or germs or whatever. I don't know you know that overcomes people and i say that people to whom bad things are being done have a choice to make. They can resist and rebel or they can give in. And everybody has that power of making a decision and history tells us that. People have been in much greater jams, you know, and crises, being put upon by much stronger oppression than anything that's happened to populations during COVID from governments. And those people historically, some of them have fought for their freedoms and died. They made that choice. And now we're supposed to just believe that, well, the people against whom these, COVID crimes are being committed. You know, they just kind of fell into a mass spell and they're not really responsible. And, you know, it's just a kind of oozy-goozy phenomenon, something or other, you know. I'm just not buying it. I'm not buying it. I don't believe in it. Now, I said in one of my articles... It's early on in COVID and you walk into a huge supermarket and for the first time you see a hundred people wearing masks. That's quite a visual event the first time, right? Let's say you're not. You go, wow, look at this. It looks like something happened to everybody all at once. It looks like some kind of movie, like a horror movie, a science fiction movie where, you know, some cloud or ray kind of drifted in and everybody suddenly went, you know, like invasion of the body snatchers. That's what it looks like the first time. so i can understand why some people would be attracted to the idea of mass formation but in reality what's happening in that supermarket is one person at a time when they got up in the morning before they got out of the house and went to the supermarket decided to put on a mask each one of those hundred people made that choice Now, you could say, well, they didn't have any other choice because they were told they had to. Bullshit. You know, yeah, there's pressure. Of course, there's pressure. But does that mean there's no choice? There's no freedom to decide? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Each one of those people, whether it was a split decision, they just decided to surrender to authority, or they grumped and grumbled with themselves and said, okay, I'll put on whatever. That's what they did. And then they all showed up at the supermarket and you walked in and you went, wow, this is a mass phenomenon. No, it isn't. It just seems that way. It's one person at a time deciding to do what they did, which is put on the mask. That's what it is. And in the same sense, much of the sort of visual desolated cities streets with boarded up businesses you know all of that it's like it's out of a movie all of a sudden hey yesterday the city was alive with people and whatever and now look at it and i see three people stumbling close to buildings and they're wearing masks and it feels like i'm in a a horror movie or something of the future you know and sure there's a temptation to say from wherever this entire new reality was lowered upon the population because it looks that way, it seems that way, but it isn't that way. Because as basically when I talk about decentralization, we're getting down to the individual. And when we talked about controlled opposition people, we're getting down to the individual. What the individual cons himself into believing or not decides to do or not gives into or doesn't give into rebels against or not finds a solution or not the culture and i've broken it down in many articles into you know what i'm talking about <clears throat> People these days tend to not want to think things through. To me, mass formation, even though it may sound very sophisticated, is the easy way out of interpreting what happened during the last two years. It's the easy way out. It's getting off the hook. It's getting the predators off the hook and the victims off the hook and everybody off the hook. But, you know, I think a whole lot of people who like the term. I'm going to make a generalization. They weren't doing anything anyway. It's not like they were doing something to really rebel against COVID. They just happen to be attracted to the whole idea of mass formation. Okay, great. Wow. I love it. It's because to them, it's like somebody showed me the movie. Yeah. It's like a movie. Yeah. COVID, the whole thing was like everybody walked into a movie. Yeah. But a person who buys that idea and who rolls around in it, you know, like, molasses or whatever, was that person really doing all that much to begin with? You know, I don't don't think so. That's my guess, you know, because masturbation is an excuse not to do anything. That's the way I look at it. It's like yet one more excuse. We're all in the movie and we can't fucking get out and something happened to all of us. And that's the way it feels to me. And okay, wow. And even the Fauci and the god and those other guys—they're really—they got cast in the movie too. And they were just going along, you know. We're all, yeah, uh, 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 you know. Okay, fine. It feels kind of good. It's a metaphor. Life is like a movie, and sometimes that's the way it seems, and you experience it that way.
1: Fine. Mm.
0: Okay, great. But there's a lot of times when you don't. You know? So I take it as a kind of, at best, as a sort of, you know, metaphor that really turns out to be an excuse if somebody takes it seriously. You know. And so since I mean, people,
1: since go. people yeah. seem
0: to be taking it seriously, I decided to write about it.
1: Is it possible that people can get caught up in frenzied behavior? I'm thinking of Jonestown. Sorry, uh, yeah, Jonestown, the Rwandan genocide.
0: Yeah, of course, that has been pointed out to me. But uh, I don't recall the, the the real history of Jonestown, which is not exactly what the public have been led to believe. But it's my impression that at some point those person those people in the cult were under the control of other people with guns. The, the enforcers had guns. They were not just brainwashed. It wasn't that kind of thing. It was, okay, we got you here now. In this remote location. We got guns. We've got leaders. We've got force. We've. You know. You know we've got the force. So to say. Well they just fell under the spell. Yeah. Uh, In San Francisco. For a while. But even then. Each. And each person fell under the spell, chose to accept and surrender to the leader, Jim Jones. It wasn't like Jim Jones had a magic wand that he waved and suddenly everybody just went under. That's not how it works. There's something ticking in each person sitting in the audience in San Francisco. I like this guy. He seems to be real, genuine for the first time. I'm desperate. I need something. He's offering something that sounds like an answer to me. That's an individual at work. I'm going to join up. Is there peer pressure? Sure, in different areas of life, there greater degrees. But that's just another situation in which a person just chooses what to do. Well, I can't say that because what, what my friends would just excommunicate me. Tough shit. Tough shit. There's a moral choice involved here. Do you want to say it or not? I'm not saying you have to say it, but know that you're making a decision here. It's not like, well, because my friends would excommunicate me, that's it. I just have no choice in the matter. (laughs) That's a bunch of crap. At some level, all of these notions of mass whatever negate the idea of free will an individual freedom which if yeah. you if you push that to the side yeah, that's a good point then all kinds of shit is possible to mm. to say to 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 bring forward like for example and some of it you see is because of the confounding nature of what people eventually come to believe like for example in the 1930s in america you had some famous people who were very articulate and supposedly very intelligent saying that communism was the way. And they were aware, some of them, of what was happening in the Soviet Union. And they still said communism is the way. And you go, how the fuck could you do that? I mean, come on. And so there would be a tendency to say, well, because of how ridiculous that contradiction was among these supposedly intelligent people, there must have been some kind of a phenomenon that sort of took them over and brainwashed them and blah 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 da you know? Yeah, if you want to say Karl Marx was that Influence or Lenin, or Trotsky or whoever fine, except each one of those famous people was making up their own mind about this because they had the freedom to do that. And they made that choice and that decision as to what to align themselves with. And. That's how it works.
1: Are, are people not more inclined to align with particular um, positions, though, based on um, a variation of vectors? Say, for example, if you're born in Baghdad, you're very likely to align with Islam.
0: Statistically, so, yes. But statistics are presenting a kind of uh, it's like you're in the wrong barn because there are people who, who left Iraq or left Iran and came to America who are not in that camp, religious or political whatsoever. How did that happen? So. My choice is to say that people have choice. They always have choice. I mean, you had a situation at one time in uh, Europe where there was very little freedom at all. And so you could say, well. People. There was an inclination at the time for people to believe in the baron who lived up on the hill for whom they toiled, the king or the queen, the pope, you know, the whole hierarchy because of where they were born into. And blah, blah, blah. But then you, you move a little bit ahead of history and you begin to see rebellion happening. Oh, wait a minute. That's not the whole story. The statistics gives you kind of like a a still, a snapshot, Mm -hmm. but time gives you the development. You move ahead in time and all of a sudden the barons on the hill don't quite have as much power and neither does the king and neither does the pope and something's turning here. People are turning, people are saying, freedom is real my freedom so the inclination argument is to me not relevant mm.
1: sam harris and scott adams uh have both argued that uh free will is an illusion is there validity in in their arguments
0: uh, I've gone over this time and time again, you know, anybody who says that is totally full of shit, because if he thought that was true, he wouldn't say free will is an illusion. Why is he <laughs> saying that? He, he would have to admit that he's saying it because he has to say it. There was nothing else he could have said because he's not free and nobody's free and and there's no reason to do these fucking cartoons or whatever he's doing, but he has to do them because that's what he does, because he's not free. So the argument that there's no free will is completely self-defeating because usually the people who make it are trying to sit up on some kind of a pedestal and tell everybody else what they have to do or think or believe in or something like that. And so you say to them, well, why are you talking if nobody's free? Or You mean you're the only one who's magically free enough to tell us, the rest of us, that we're not free? That's fucking bullshit. I wrote a long fictional interview with Albert Einstein because at one time, he told the Saturday Evening Post that he did not believe in free will at all and that it was total determinism. So I engaged him in a scientific argument in this fictional interview. You know, I said, "Would you agree <clears throat> that uh, atoms and and the smaller uh, subatomic particles have no consciousness or awareness or free will? Well, of course not. They just and they just follow the laws of." Uh, move around and so forth and that that the brain is really nothing more than a collection of of these particles and so forth and so following that logic you see you end up with there is no such thing as free will period isn't that right Albert yes absolutely right okay so why are we sitting here fucking talking then what's going on do you think you understand me right now as we're talking Albert of course I understand you how if you're nothing than a collection of these little particles that have absolutely no awareness or consciousness or choice or whatever, then how could you possibly, quote, understand what I'm saying? Where does that understanding come from? Well, oh, I don't know. But you say you understand. Me. Of course I understand you. How? On what basis? And we went on and on like this in this fictional dialogue that I constructed. And I said, you know, Albert, you're finally driven to conclude that there's something else going on here. That is non-material. Because in the material universe that you propose, there is nothing except zip, 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 totally unfree motion. So the the fact that you say you do understand me and there is actual meaning in what I'm saying, where does that idea come from? And that you can grasp it and that we can talk and all of this right now and here presupposes that there is something else that is non-material, that is outside that realm of physical universe. And so naturally I had him. Confess, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, there seems to be, you know, yeah, you know. Well, of course there is. Otherwise, nothing makes sense. There's nothing in the physical world, including these bodies and brains, at least in our conception of it, little particles are fucking around and, you know, to suppose that there's freedom or meaning or understanding or any of that. But there is. Mm. You can make a choice. You can decide to do this or that or something completely different. People can. They do. And when, when people realize that, uh, when an individual realizes that, then he realizes that the whole idea of mass, something or other, and whatever, has to be moved aside here. We have to look at people, either deciding or not deciding, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever.
1: In front of you, there's a crystal ball. What do you see?
0: I see a lot of chaos and confusion and uncertainty and uh, deconstruction of organizations and decentralization. I've said for a long time, I consider the war for freedom, by which I mean freedom with responsibility, individual, freedom and power. This is like a 10,000 year war. This is not like, oh, suddenly COVID came and I'm like, you know, (laughs) this has been going on since the cave. It's still going on and it's going to keep going on. And, you know, just as an off-the-cuff kind of idea, I would, I, I would throw out, okay, maybe we're halfway through. 5,000 years, we've got another 5,000 to go. I don't know, maybe it's 20,000, maybe it's 100,000. Whatever it is, I believe there will come a day when most people will understand freedom with responsibility. And when they do, not just as a vague thought, but really, then a huge amount of the swamp will be starved.
1: Where can I follow you?
0: I have a Substack page. Paying a lot of attention to that now, John Rappaport's Substack. My website of 20 years is no nomorefakenews.com.
1: I pronounced your surname in a fancy way, with a silent T. Did I get it wrong? Is it John Rappaport?
0: Correct, with a T. The poor would be sort of French, I think. There's some version of it in French, but it's spelled differently. Yeah, the T is you say the T. Ah,
1: uh, I'm so sorry, I I thought ah, it was just, I thought it was the French I thought it was the French fancy way. <laughs>
0: that's the least of the mispronunciations i've heard of my name over the years so no problem <laughs>
1: john rapaport thank you for joining me in the trenches
0: thank you very much it's been a pleasure
1: my name is germ this is germ warfare the battle of ideas if you enjoyed this podcast please visit supportgerm.com.